for joining another episode of First Generation. I'm Darian Shirazi, and today we have an incredible guest, Max Levchin, who's the founder of Affirm and also PayPal, along with a number of other um, things, and a, and a prolific investor, someone that is also an immigrant and a highly successful entrepreneur. So today we're very excited to hear his story about how he came to the United States and sort of what he believes the future for immigrants hold and, and the opportunities that still exist. So without further ado, I'll, I'll pass it over to Max. Thanks for having me, Darian. Um, I guess uh, you covered my professional past reasonably well. Uh, I do start companies for fun and profit. That used to be my one-line bio. Uh, before uh, <laughs> before that uh, chapter of my life truly began, I was a young pioneer in the Soviet Union where I was born and raised, or raised a little strong. I actually, I, I consider my home Chicago. Uh, that's where I sort of came of age, truly. But in 1991, my family immigrated from Soviet Ukraine uh, to Chicago, and that's where I spent my formative years. Um, yeah, went to University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Happened to probably be the luckiest boy in the world. I overlapped with Mark Andreessen by, like, I think a half a year on campus, but I got the glimpse of what the future is and went from wanting to be an academic to wanting to start companies. Fantastic. And I, I, if, uh, if my reading serves me correctly, you also overlapped with Luke Nosek, another PayPal co-founder, Scott Bannister, a number of pretty amazing people. And so maybe walk through how, first, I'd love to hear about your, your trip from the Soviet Union to Chicago, what that was like, what it was like with your parents and the contrast between the Soviet Union and, and the United States, maybe. Sure. Um, so I grew up in a scientist family, which was pretty awesome. I was surrounded by these super smart people. Most of them were physicists um, that placed enormous amount of value and attention on education. Um, they really wanted me to grow up curious person, a thinking person, you know, all the sort of uh, the, the sort of things that you'd wish for your own kids, basically. And uh, as a result, they were also fairly nonconformist in terms of political views. They were not really excited about uh, what the communist regime had done with the place. And um, the, the family also happened to be Jewish. And so the combination of having a bunch of free thinking, super educated, overachieving scientists and being in the off prosecuted minority made them not exactly welcome members of society, or at least not, not very welcome by the regime in power. And so starting in the late 80s, I believe, the reason I don't know this uh, is because they actually kept it a secret from me, worried that I would tell my school friends. Wow. Uh, and so it was very difficult to get out of Soviet Union. It was not the kind of country you can just like get up and leave. And so right, right. they started trying to get out sometime, at least in the 80s, possibly in the 70s, although I certainly don't know. But in the early 90s, or it's really late 80s, they told me that they think they may be able to get a what used to be known as the invitation, so this coveted piece of paper. If you have a relative in the U.S., however remote, you could get an invitation to join with your family, basically. And so we eventually hmm. got one of those. Uh, and then in this very dramatic clandestine trip to Moscow, I grew up in Kiev. We took a train to Moscow, went to the uh, U.S. embassy, and were interviewed by a presumably a State Department person about sort of, you know, 
Are you really leading because of your political convictions? Do you feel prosecuted? Do you, do you feel uh, persecuted? Not prosecuted. There's a, I get nervous about my story, start mixing up words like I get immigrant. Um, and so, uh, so, so, so you sort of tell the story and, um, you know, fortunately, um, the story clearly rang true because we were allowed to enter the United States as refugees. And the next year was this insane scramble to decide what comes, what goes. And right in the middle of it, the U.S. dollar versus ruble jumped 10x. So our earthly possessions, which were wow, basically added up to about $6,000, were suddenly devalued to 600. And so five of us entered the United States with $600 to our name wow. in July of 1991, just after I turned 16. Wow. And when you when you got to the U.S., what, what did you do? Did you actually have family in the U.S. or was it, it how, how did you get yeah. started and was the U.S. a welcoming place when you arrived? So we did have um, two relatives in the U.S. at that point. Um, my grandmother, who deserves her own fulsome storytelling and probably a podcast of her own if she was still around because she was such an interesting person, um, basically... <laughs> So, so my grandmother was sort of the engineer or the, the mastermind behind the, the great Levchin family exodus. And so she tracked down initially a very, very remote by way of marriage, you know, tenuous to, to be charitable, but extremely kind branch of our family that invited huh. her son, my uncle, to come to the U.S. about a half a year prior. And so he was already in the U.S., in Chicago. And so he was the one who mm -hmm. then, with the help of this relative, invited us. And when we got there, we had my real uncle and then this extremely kindly old man who was also known as my uncle, but he was really something more like a, you know, 13th removed or something along those lines. <laughs> but uh, I, we had these two relatives. Uh, they're both very nice and very kind to us. We showed up to Chicago with basically no money at all, but an apartment that they rented for us. And um, my parents basically scrambled to find work. Um, it was a, I never really talked to my dad, who sadly has passed away, about it, but he had multiple advanced degrees and multiple science. Um, and uh, his first sort of a realization out the door was that he spoke their own language. He studied all these languages. He was a polyglot, but he really didn't know English particularly well. He spoke German and French and Spanish, translated professionally for multiple languages. And uh, he was a, um, his first gig was to wow. uh, help my quote unquote uncle paint a convenience store signs uh, because we, we were on Devon street in Chicago, which is kind of a, this long strip of, tiny little stores selling huh. everything and anything. And so they constantly needed for sale sign or 10% off sign. And he knew how to wield a brush. So he would go in and say, does anybody design? And in his broker English, and they would tell him, yes, paint us a tomatoes, 10% off sign. And he would do that. So that was my, my dad's first job. My mom, who was a software engineer, was responsible for my learning how to write code. Her first job was a babysitter. And, uh, she babysat, <laughs> um, all sorts of kids wow. for, uh, something like 10 years before she finally secured a, uh, a, a, her first programming job. And so, so it was, and did you, go ahead, sorry. I, was, I think it was, it was sort of a, I mean, I, I felt very welcome and extremely 
excited to be in the US, but I definitely was sort of coming to terms with the fact that this was a big reset button. I remember my parents having these fairly tense conversations in the kitchen about maybe we should go back. And that was pretty terrifying, I think, to all of us. Wow. What, what was the reason for that? Just because the because life was so much more difficult in, in America? Uh, it was actually, it was not. So the thing is that when we had these two supporting relatives, um, they were certainly willing to pitch in and help us not starve or anything. I just think that the experience of coming in from, you know, having my mom is a physicist and a software engineer. My dad was a chemist and a writer and a translator and just being thrown to the you know, here, do these menial jobs was really, really hard for them. I mean, they, they were not young. Right. They, they were already in their late 30s, early 40s. And so they were sort of like, wow, like this is quite the humbling experience. And they're clearly doing it for us, but I think it was really hard for them. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. And and so now now you, you're 16, you're in the, you're in the U.S. What, what, what next? I mean, did you, so you apply to UIUC, you go to UIUC, which is very different. It's in the middle of nowhere relative to the Chicago, right? And um, and so, what was that like? I mean, is it? It seems it seems interesting because they're the people that you ended up starting companies with are all also immigrants, and it seems like they're all everyone is first generation in the in what you've been involved in. So you get to UIUC. Did you you know? I I heard maybe you went to the Advanced Computing Center or something along those lines. Maybe talk about that too. Sure. Um, so I, I was totally hooked on computers back in the old country. Like I, I kind of chanced into it because my mom's research lab got a PC and they sort of commanded her to write code because you know, Soviet Union, they sort of tell you what to do. And she was reluctantly starting on it and then showed me a little bit about programming. And I was like, wow, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. So I was completely hooked and in love with it. <laughs> One of those, so the, my, my first almost American memory was on the flight um, from Moscow to New York, the first leg of our journey. I snuck into the uh, first class cabin yeah. to grab a copy of Computer Shopper that somebody left in the magazine rack <laughs> because I was so excited to look at the, like, like a super <laughs> thick magazine just like showing off all these really cool. I remember those. Very exciting. Actually thinking like, okay, we have $600. This computer without a monitor costs 900. Where do I find zero regard? Like we need to eat. We need to pay rent. I'm like, well, I need a computer, but, um, I needless to say, I, I did not. <laughs> One of my two uncles, by the way, bought my first computer for me basically as a, Hey, you, you have a, you you have an unstoppable passion for this thing. Let, let me, uh, let me say you on your way. And so I, I had the world's cheapest 286, but I had a computer within a few months of getting into the U S. So needless to say, I applied to, um, I mean, I, I, okay, I could only really apply to state schools because there was just zero money. And so I, I fought for every scholarship dollar I could find. Right. Um, I got into U of I, which was amazing because it was top 10 computer science school within the state of Illinois. Um, I showed up there with my crappy 286 uh, in tow <laughs> and, you know, of course, major to computer science. And then I ran into uh, this sort of pack of kids um, within sort of the computer science, computer engineering majors. There was a sort of the ultra nerd club called ECM, uh, Association for Computing Machinery. I think that's what you're referring to. And yeah, um, that's what, yeah, sorry, I forgot the acronym. Yeah, uh, ACM is the oldest society in computing. Uh, they will have, you know, I think I'm very delinquent in paying my dues to ACM, but they've been around even longer than IEEE. And um, I think they were maybe 
not sure, but they were the first society in computing because that was their slogan that I memorized in college. And uh, we, we did a <laughs> bunch of fun, interesting projects at ACM. But the most important thing is that I met all these people that I stayed friends with, you know, for for good. And um, many of them became my various collaborators, co-founders. And so Luke Nosek and Scott Bannister and Libor McCallick, who is now uh, president at a firm. And uh, Alan Braverman, who yeah. co-founded Zoom and uh, Eventbrite, and um, there's like there and you, um, Steve Chen, yeah. who was uh, obviously and John Kareem, who founded YouTube, and Russell Simmons and Jeremy Stoppelman, who founded YouTube. Yelp. So in, in in some ways, the sort of the PayPal mafia, like there's the strong faction or the clan or the family of the UI. And so the University of Illinois in the uh, mid early mid nineties was a kind of a magical place for, for people you know, retrospectively. And so interesting. And, and so you, you moved to the Bay area. What was the reasoning behind that after U of I, it, was it just because everybody, that was sort of the pilgrimage that everyone made or was it, was it a, a, a specific reason? Uh, actually sort of ties back to the, uh, the immigrant story pretty neatly. So, Basically, yeah. Really? Uh, so, so we were starting companies on campus because all these people were starting companies kind of all around us. This is, you know, I, I came to UI in the summer of '93. By mid '94, the world was exploding. By '95, I'd already my first company had already failed. Uh, Luke and, and Scott um, and I were co-founders of that. And so, as this was going on, we kept on realizing that you can't really start at the time these days, I think it's quite possible, but back then starting companies in rural Illinois was a bit of a, you know, self-imposed death sense where, you know, people just wouldn't know what to do with you. Like we went to Chicago to pitch for funding and people are like, okay, uh, this is not like a parking lot that has a good cash flow. Like business <laughs> has bad cash flow. Like you guys want money in and no money's coming out for a while. So like, we, we don't want to fund that. And so, Right. One by one, all of my friends were like, all right, you know what? I'm going to drop out of school and move to Palo Alto because that's where the action really is. And so Luke actually managed to graduate by like sprinting a bunch of classes and like getting his degree in three years, I think. Scott left, um, a couple of other folks mm -hmm. left. And so as this was going on, I was like, all right, I need to pack up and go to Palo Alto. So I drove up to Chicago to see my family and my mom set me down and basically said, your grandmother will die if you drop out of school. Like you must graduate. <laughs> and so there's this like, <laughs> and like but there's like a whole world out there. It's so exciting. Like I have to be a part of this. And I got this riot act read to me where they're like, you are such a black sheep. Like you're the first generation left chin without a PhD to show for it. Like where is your, you know, immigrant family wow. grounding? Like you have, you are failing us. Like the least you can do is acquire a bachelor's degree like go back and do not speak of this again. So it was, it was, it was a very <laughs> dramatic showdown. And so I, and my grandmother was very, very ill at that point. She was, she was definitely uh, on her way uh, towards passing. And so I sort of sat down with her and basically said, Hey, I really want to go. And then she was very, very strong influence in my life in general, but she was also, she was an academic. She had multiple PhDs. And so she always dreamt that I would get a, doctorate in physics, win the Nobel, and, you know, that would be the, uh, her crowning achievement. And, you know, I already frustrated her by majoring in a less pure science, computer science being kind of a, you know, little silly <laughs> offshoot of mathematics in her mind. 
Uh, and, but she, she was very supportive. She, she loved me for, for who I was and, and what I wanted to do. But she said, look, you, you really do have to get your bachelor's degree. It's just like you don't know what's going to happen to you if you fail at this company starting thing, which I don't fully understand. But, you know, more power to you. you got to be able to fall back on your education. That, that's basically, in a nutshell, the story of Jews and immigrants and all of us who sort of pick up and try to uh, make a life in a new place. Like you fall back on education. And so I was like, you know, that, that's wise. I should do that. So I, I went back, uh, graduated right. uh, with my bachelor's and like literally as quickly as I could, packed all of my earthly possessions into a giant rider truck and drove it from Champaign-Urbana to Palo Alto, California. No, actually, I had a co-founder of mine, another U of I, sort of a PayPal mafia adjacent person, Eric Huss, who co-founded a couple of different projects with me, which eventually ended up getting acquired by... Uh, okay. Uh, by Scott Bannister's companies, so we we so we, we we drove uh, through uh, through Highway 80 together. Wow, that's amazing! And and you get to California, and is it a? It, my father describes it as just incredible. You know, he felt like it was a transformation from everywhere else in the country. Did you feel similarly? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it it's definitely. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been to California once or twice before. Uh, and so it was definitely not a like, oh my God, it's warm here moment, but it's definitely very different when you sort of show up and your friends who you, you know, did all nighters in school with and suffered through, you know, two days with questionable food and no sleep, take you to <laughs> Jamba Juice on Stanford campus and tell you this is how it can be every day. And uh, I, I definitely, uh, I definitely <laughs> was smitten by the idea of living here um on the spot so yeah it, it was a the, the thing that i remember the most actually so the, the first day or maybe the second day from my arrival i went to in fact the jamba juice on stanford campus which i think may still be there but it was definitely at the time it was the era of jamba juice and right in front of um the uh I think <laughs> the, the union where jamba juice was there were all these outdoor tables trusted her, sorry there were all these outdoor trusted tables, her, yeah and uh Literally every single one of them was occupied by a young person pitching another, also seemingly very young person on their startup. And you can like hear them being so loud and excited about their various ideas. And I was like, wow. This, and I, I already came in prime to want to start my own company. And this idea of like pitching for funding was a thing that you, you know, you went to Chicago for and you drove for two and a half hours only to be told, but the person doesn't understand, like you should go back to school and, you know, get a real job. And so this idea of like land of sweet juices and beautiful weather and palms and amazing looking campus and funding for crazy ideas was like the, the potent mix that I, I was very into. Yeah. And, and it still is kind of like that in a lot of ways. I yeah. feel there are other parts of the world that have transformed towards sort of a more, I would say liberal mindset in the finance sense that, you know, you can fund things that are crazy and they could become big, but do you, you feel like it, it's still special here? At least I feel that way. I, I do. I, I do. I, th I think the access to funding and networks, the most valuable thing about Silicon Valley or the sort of the greater Silicon Valley isn't the money. It's the sort of shared hallucination that anything is possible. Like most companies will <laughs> fail. Most companies will fail everywhere. It doesn't really matter where you start them. But in right. California, in certain Silicon Valley, you have this prevailing mindset that, ah, you know what, it just might work out. Whereas in a lot of other places, you didn't and kind of still don't. There's a critical mass of people here who have seen it succeed from the most unlikely of beginnings that they are 
if not willing to take a chance on you, they're willing to believe that someone will. And I think that's unique and you know, very, very hard to replicate. Right, right. Not to mention that people here don't really care where you came from, who you are, where you went to school. Anyone can build a company. Um, whereas in other parts of the country, you know, they ask you, the first thing they ask you is where do you go to school or, you know, who, who do you know? And, and I feel like it's just more open here. Yeah, the pedigree matters a lot less in Northern California somehow. Right, right. Certainly so so um, now you're, you're at Stanford campus, you're enjoying your Jamba Juice. What next? How does this turn into, um, I know we, we don't have a, a ton of time, but how does this turn into PayPal and, and all that? <laughs> <laughs> so I was squatting on Scott Bannister's floor uh, because I certainly couldn't afford uh, my own rent and he had an air conditioning. In fact, he had a broken heater, which would turn on in the middle of the night, in like a hundred degree heat already. And so during the day, I would go to Stanford campus and hide out in the backs of classes for the summer school kids taking, taking classes there. And I kind of randomly chanced into one of the lectures, basically for air conditioning purposes. Um, and it was about to go fall asleep <laughs> in the back of the room. But the room was very small. There were like 10 people there. And Peter Thiel was giving a lecture on currency trading. And so, one, it was interesting. Two, it was very awkward to fall asleep with just a few people in there. So I ended up having to stay awake. And then he turned out to be a really interesting character. So I introduced myself afterwards and he was already friends with Luke Nosek. So I kind of knew of him. So it wasn't entirely random that I walked into that particular classroom, but I still intended to sleep. But afterwards I, I introduced myself. Uh, and then the next morning we met for breakfast, um, just to sort of continue the conversation because we, we seem to have hit it off on the spot uh, at the um, Embarcadero, right next to Embarcadero, Jamba Juice uh, at Hobie's, which is sadly no longer there, which, by the way, used to teach. I love Hobies. Hobies. Awesome. They put cinnamon in everything. Yes, uh, too <laughs> much. But I actually I spent a long time finding the coffee cake recipe from Hobie's, but have been successfully able to find and replicate it in my own kitchen. My, my proudest moment. But they closed all locations, right? That's so sad. And certainly that one is gone. I don't know if they're all gone, but that particular one featured Mark Andreessen as customer of the year for many, many years. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> That's fantastic. So you you run into him, you run into Peter Thiel, and you he's talking about currency trading, and that I guess causes you to think about money transfer uh, over the internet, right? And it started out with with yep. Palm Pilots, I think, was the initial version, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I I was very into what later became known as mobile computing, but just this idea of a computer in your pocket was fascinating to me, and so I kept on tinkering with various projects. Uh, my background, a little bit because of the sort of the Soviet upbringing, I was always I mean, I was surrounded by people who lived a semi-clandestine life trying to hide their convictions and their desire to leave the country from prying eyes. So my focus in school, certainly as I contemplated initially, at least going to graduate school, was cryptography and design of secret codes. And so combination of really small computers, sort of a kind of spycraft-ish type idea of having secret codes in a, in a palm of my hand and a tiny little computer was kind of what was brewing in my head at the time. And Peter was all about currency trading and, and money and sort of the complicated economic concepts like seniorage. And so we sort of put our heads together and that's what, what ended up happening was PayPal. Fantastic. That's awesome. And, uh, and so, so I think, you know, that th that's well covered history, um, on what happened to PayPal and, and eBay and all, and all that. Um, and so now maybe, maybe talk a little bit of what inspired you to then, to then look to a firm, because I know that, I know that this is something that you had been thinking about for a long time and, and it's an interesting model, at least a new way for people to have access to credit that don't have access to credit. 
Yeah, it's actually so that's another really important throwback to to being an immigrant. So when I came to the U.S., first thing that happened to me on campus, I got a credit card uh, as every student used to do before the Card Act, right. and that immediately wrecked my credit because I tried to finance my first and second startup from credit cards. And um, you can do that, but if you don't have any money, which is what happens to you when your startups fail, you eventually can't make minimum payments and seeing I was too proud to ask my parents for help or anybody. And certainly I don't think they really had any money to offer me anyway. um, I sort of ended up being delinquent or not sort of, I was delinquent for way too many weeks. Uh, I got my sort of obligatory collections calls and everything. And somewhere in the middle of it, I basically ended up just destroying my FICO score. And promptly, you know, as my next startup did okay, I repaired it, I thought, by paying all of my bills. And and I made made a point of calling all these collectors that called me. And I was maybe the one person in the world that called them and apologized and said, hey, here's the money. Here's the interest I owe you. I'm so sorry I screwed up. I was really broke. And they were were very thankful. But my credit score never really corrected for another 10 or 15 years. And that, you know, like literally right after PayPal IPO, where I was basically independently wealthy, I had to pay cash for a car because my credit was so bad, the dealer recognized my name because we just got a bunch of newspaper coverage, but still didn't sell me a car on credit. Hmm. And so this idea that the FICO score just doesn't really keep track of life's changes stuck with me and hang out with a bunch of uh, old PayPal friends. We sort of bantered about how there's all this alternative financial data that's available like the actual transactional data, the information about you know what's being bought, and you know, there, there's got to be signal in there that describes the probability of losing money in this transaction if you were the lender of record. And so that was kind of the rabbit hole we jumped into to figure out: is there an alternative data? Can you right. have a better lending model? And in the process, we kind of deconstructed the credit card and looked for all the things that we thought were just not good about it, like this idea of compounding interest. It's really hard to compute; it's an exponential function that sort of pushes you deeper and deeper into debt. And so the firm model was, well, let's not compound interest. Let's just tell people, here's a simple interest. Here's how many dollars you'll have to pay us back and stick with that. And then in a process that, you know, late fees don't really do anything in the sense that they punish you for either having no intention to pay, which of course doesn't really help anyone because you're not planning to pay anyway, or they kick you when you're down. Like when I was down in college, Mm -hmm. There was no way I could have paid those minimum payments because I had zero dollars and zero cents. So charging me late fees just aggravated me in the situation. And so we got rid of late fees, never, never had them in a firm, never will, and so on and so forth. And so basically we just built a credit product the way I think I would have loved to have it when I was 18, 19 years old. And uh, it, it's been a decade of that, and uh, it's hmm. now massive and terrifyingly so in a good way. <laughs> a publicly traded company. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I mean, the, the, the amazing thing is that it speaks to your upbringing and your passion. I mean, you've reinvented the credit model. You've reinvented how people pay for things. And, and the current model for getting credit or access to, to any form of, of, loan, of, of lending is inherently discriminatory towards people that are poor and people that maybe don't have the means. And yet access to credit is the only opportunity maybe that a lot of them have to, to grow themselves or, or to find new opportunities. Um, and so is that the plan to really build a financial services business for these groups that maybe were, were sort of harmed by the FICO model? I think that's where it started. Yeah. But the thing that's really amazing is it sort of empirically is very clear that it's for everyone. 
it's not just for yeah. the you know immigrants are a largest group, but it's not the largest group in this country. And yet, it seems that there's a lot more of us who think that the current model is pretty broken and we can do better. And so, if you sort of you know at this point, it has a name: this buy now, pay later movement, etc. It's fundamentally all about taking apart the ultra complicated tool that is the credit card. And I think it makes sense beyond that. There, there are more products out there that should serve people that use them and that they kind of screw them. And so unpacking it and delivering it in a way that's both user-friendly and useful and delightful and doesn't require you to learn how to read legalese in you know three-point font is what we're working on. So it, it's, it's long past the immigrant and the kind of a, you know, on underbank at, at this, this point. point in the beginning, yeah. it was certainly that, but uh, you know, it, it, right. it's, it, it's much, much wider. Appeal now. Yeah, no, I mean, it, the product has just gotten so fantastic, so beautiful, so well done. It's so easy to use. I'm, I'm very impressed. So congratulations there. Um, and, and I know you have a hard stop in a couple of minutes. So I wanted to just switch gears a little bit into talking about what you, th- what you see as the future for immigrants in America. Do you feel like, what are the things that you think are going wrong? What are the things that you think we should be doing to encourage people like you, the 16 year old version to build in the next set of big companies and, and to want to come to the United States? That's another thing that deserves its own podcast. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um... That's, I, I totally get it, <laughs> but it is, int- it's important. So it's super important. Um, I think the immigration politics in the U.S. are really, really complicated. And unfortunately, they are wrapped in party politics and all sorts of heterogeneous issues are, are wrapped together. My, and if, if I'm allowed a fix this one thing and it'll get better, I think one of the obvious things we can do here is to basically provide a very easy path to stay and become legal and work and most importantly start companies for graduates of schools in the United States. There's still, this is the best country in the world. I believe that very firmly and it is the best country in the world to get an education. So lots of people come to the U S to get trained. And over the last, you know, at least five, maybe 10 years, we've made it harder and harder for them to stick around and start a company all the while the world and countries where they come from is getting better and better at telling them, why don't you just come back now that you got your fancy degree in the U S and start your next world changing project here. And from the competitive point of view, we would be so much better off if your diploma came with a green card staple to it, because then you'd have a choice. Like some people might still choose to go back to their country of origin and start their company there. But U.S. and Silicon Valley is still the center, and maybe more would stay, and more would make amazing things. And if you, you know, as as the premise of the show is, lots and lots of first generation, zero generation uh, entrepreneurs are immigrants. It's because they they you know we, we get the job yeah. done. We we have an imposter complex, so we work harder. I'm not, not sure what it is. Uh, I don't think immigrants are in any way better than non-immigrants, but uh, there's definitely an entrepreneurial drive that's omnipresent in a lot of us. Yeah, I think it's the the resilience. I mean, when you when you're faced with challenges at a young age and early age, you know, you you then, you know, figure out how to power through them. You know, you you yeah, so. Yep. I think that that's exactly right. Um, well, I know we're coming up on, on time and, and I, I wanted to, I want to be uh, respectful of that for you. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Maybe any advice you have for some, uh, for, you know, in younger people, younger entrepreneurs that are outside of the U S that want to come here, any advice you could offer to them before we uh, wrap it up? 
Um, always try. I, I think um, I'm, I'm generally not given to regret. So I, I, I have no real, like if I would have just done that, it would have been so much better. Who knows? You can only run the experiment once. There's no A-B testing life. But I think all the times where I look back and said, wow, like that was, that was a good call. You know, good, good job, little Max. You, you, you've, you've done well on this one. It's always inevitably about me saying, oh, you know what, I'll just give this a shot. And I think as an immigrant in particular, yeah. you definitely have a lot of, you, know, you have the weight of your family's expectations. You have your own kind of fear of failure. You think the imposter complex, you know, is, is real. All of that adds up to opting out of opportunities. And I think the, the, the best advice I can, I would have given myself 30 years ago and, and you know, to, to anyone sort of at the beginning of their immigrant journey, don't, don't look back. Don't, uh, don't, don't shirk, uh, from the opportunity. There's, there's definitely lots to do. And, um, when you're young in particular, failure is not very expensive and opportunities are massive. So, so try, try every time. Well, thank you so much, Max. Really appreciate you coming on the show. And um, I'm sure there's going to be a, a number of people that will be inspired by your story. And um, looking forward to, see, to uh, spending more time chatting about this in the future. Thank you.